Hey, welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week on TheRinger.com, it's 1999 Movies Week. Already up on the site, we've released parts one and two of the top 50 movies of 1999. And later this week, Shea Serrano is writing about The Matrix, Andrew Grudadaro is writing about Cruel Intentions, and Rob Harvilla argues why being John Malkovich is the best movie of that year. You can also check out the Big Picture podcast to hear Sean Fennessy, Amanda Dobbins, and Chris Ryan share their top five favorite movies from 1999. Check out those articles on TheRinger.com and listen to The Big Picture wherever you get your podcasts. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's episode of The Watch. Andy could not join us today as he is otherwise indisposed running Godzilla's presidential campaign. But on today's show, I have a great lineup. So first, I talked to Alyssa Bereznak, who has an awesome piece on The Ringer on Thursday about the viral marketing campaign, the early viral marketing campaign around the 1999 movie, The Blair Witch Project. It is part of a larger suite of content that we've got going on on The Ringer and The Ringer Podcast Network about the year uh, in movies, 1999. And I wrote a piece about The Insider. We've got a huge list, one through 50, of the best movies of the year. There's just a bunch of good stuff on there from the uh, from the whole package. So Alyssa joined me to talk about how Blair Witch went from this micro-budgeted indie to this phenomenon where a lot of people around the time period of when the movie was released, myself included, were not entirely sure whether or not it was like a story or not. We thought it might be real. And we talked a little bit about how the filmmakers went about doing that. Uh, Later in the show, I am joined by Juliet Littman, my pal, to talk about one of my new obsessions, Vanderpump Rules. I'm not kidding. Uh, I've really found myself watching quite a bit of Vanderpump Rules. It's an interesting time in my life. And I needed to talk through it with Juliet, who is an expert on all things reality TV. I also talked to Allison Herman later in the show about Barry and a couple of other things that are on TV right now and this weekend. So stay tuned for the whole thing. It's a lot of fun. Let's get into it with Alyssa. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a real trip down memory lane to read your story about the Blair Witch Extended Universe and the way in which this film was kind of like marketed, but also it sort of started as like an almost an arts and crafts project for the people who made it when they were during their time at University of Central Florida. I wanted to start, though, with your relationship to this movie, because I would imagine it's much different than mine. So did you watch Blair Witch for this piece or had you been a, like, had you seen it before? Yeah, so the first time I ever watched Blair Witch Project was like on my laptop as I was doing research for this story. Oh my God, really? Yeah, Yeah. I was like 11 when the movie came out. And I don't know if you know this from like my Ringer Slack comments, but I am like a huge coward when it comes to (laughs) horror movies. So I wasn't any better at 11 years old, as you could imagine. Sure, yeah. Um, So how did it play for you? You know, it... I kind of knew the backstory. I knew that it was a hoax because I had already done some research, but I was still freaked out by it at times. The thing is, they didn't have any budget. So I kind of knew deep down because I knew about their funding that there wasn't going to be anything like that insane when it came to gore or CGI witches or something. But, you know, like I'm a very jumpy person. So the, the woods were still creepy to me. Like it was increasingly worse and more fucked up. And then 
the last shot. I mean, I'm kind of getting chills even talking yeah, about I it. Yeah, I know. I mean, I get I got chills like reading. <laughs> I got chills just thinking about it when we like when I when the, when this first came up for 1999 movie week. I just was like. That the ending of that movie still freaks me out. Just yeah, thinking about the it. house and just like him standing in that corner and just this feeling that something is going to get them, and you're just like a passive audience member who can't look away. It's like just really compelling storytelling. So let's go through your piece a little bit. It's, it's the the filmmakers um, all met together at University of Central Florida. And they were drawn together because they were kind of obsessed with like kind of like late night weird TV, um, you know, current affairs, sub current affairs style like docu series that would be like about Bigfoot and stuff like that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Like In Search Of, which is a like late 70s show about it's kind of like the preemptive unsolved mysteries, essentially, which I can relate to because I loved unsolved mysteries. And once um, they yeah. And once they started making this movie. You know, they made it for like this incredible, like, was it $35,000? How much did it cost to make the Blair Witch? Yeah, that, you know, estimates like vary. They claim it's like 23000 but I think it was like 35000 Okay. And then, and then what they did afterwards as they were looking for distribution was they started to create um, basically, like, as you say, an extended universe, an online like repository for information about the Blair Witch, about the characters in the story, about sort, and, and, and focusing on documentary evidence and found objects that were related to the story somehow. And you started to basically trip the wire of, is this real or not, right? Completely. And it was all an accident. It was only because they had originally aired a small trailer clip on um, a, a, a television channel as a way to get more funding for the thing. And then everyone kept like, going onto the website of that TV channel to be like, let's talk about Blair Witch. And they're like, oh, I guess we have to make a website. Yeah, it was IFC, right? And the guy whose yes. show it was was split screen. And John Pearson was like, you guys have to build your own message board or something because your fans are flooding my my like cloistered off message board, right? Yeah, he was like, you're rooting my independent film community. <laughs> That's right. Basically. That's right. I love how like <laughs> polite everybody was back then online. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it was like, dude, dear sir, do you mind setting up a new forum to account <laughs> for your He actually called him fans? on the phone. Like, that's the funny part. He wasn't like <laughs> texting him. He was like, please set up your own website, sir. And then uh, I think after Artisan got involved and bought the film... They made a documentary that was broadcast on the Sci-Fi, which back then was just SCI, not SCY-Fi, but on Sci-Fi on the cable channel. That was like a forty-five minute. It wasn't a making of. It was a. It purported to be like a true crime doc about this case, about the Blair Witch kids going off into the woods to find the, the witch. Yeah, I mean, that part kind of blew my mind, just how little anyone cared about it actually being true. I mean, this was all footage that they had shot and they were originally going to include in the movie. But I think as more fans were building online to be like, what is this? And like, is this real, et cetera? They, they became wiser and wiser about how they should edit it. And so this is just sort of like scraps of footage yeah. that they put together for an extra thing. Yeah, it's so fascinating because what you get into, especially with their, you know, they have these interviews with like local sheriffs and, you know, Heather's film teacher at the University of Maryland and all these different characters and also historical stuff about the witch, but also the killer who was living in the woods who was claiming to be sort of inspired by the witch or controlled by the witch, right? Yeah. Um, 
is that this is something that I think people want so desperately now from movies. I mean, if you look on Reddit at the theories about us, it's essentially coloring in like an entire universe around this movie that isn't there on the screen. Yeah, like, isn't there a theory that us is connected in the same universe to John Malkovich or something like that? <laughs> yeah, or there's even conversation about, like, whether or not us or Get Out, us and Get Out share a universe and whether there will be, like, a third movie that will kind of tie them to, to two together. And uh, people have suggested that there's, like, basically, like, a Peel-verse uh, emerging. But that was what Blair Witch kind of did with these little scraps of the internet was create a Blair Witch-verse. Yeah, I mean, and they had kind of cribbed that from Kevin Smith. Um, yeah. And so I, I thought that was interesting. Like, he had done that in a very mundane, normal way. Like, this is the everyday universe of my characters. And they did it in a really scary way, which is clearly more effective when you're trying to build hype around a horror film. Yeah, and Kevin Smith was really early on on setting up communities around his movies so that fans of the movies could, you know, not only just do the usual fan bullshitting stuff, but just kind of build out that world in their minds so that he could kind of populate it with movies once they finally did come out. There was some kind of precedent for this. I mean, obviously there's tons of precedent for shared characters, but Tarantino had, you know, there are characters who pop up in different Tarantino scripts as like background players or casual references like Alabama from True Romance gets mentioned in Reservoir Dogs and uh, the Vega Brothers are in Pulp oh, Fiction right. and Reservoir Dogs. So like that kind of comes up a little bit in the 90s. You see some of that, but with, with Blair Witch, I think you just had this extra layer of people going into this not knowing whether or not it was a narrative film or a documentary. Yeah, I mean, and part of that is the time. You know, the internet was just sort of becoming this commercial product. I think I mentioned in the story that they're, like the number one thing people did was check the weather on the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just like, uh, what a simple time. And now the number one thing people do is just like fight over whether or not George R.R. R. Martin is going to finish Game of Thrones. <laughs> That's right. I, I wish that was the only thing people did on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, it's just like when someone gives you this really compelling set of evidence, you're a human being. Your natural inclination is to start putting things together and drawing your own conspiracy theory board. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think that the thing that I found so incredible was the, in your story, is the way that this started to bleed over into real life, which we've sort of seen more tragically, I think, in more recent times with things that are happening online starting to impact people's real life, real lives. But in, in a kind of creepy way, you were, you wrote about how Kevin Fox, who I think, was he working at Artisan or is he the direct, was he like the marketing guy at Artisan? No, he actually helped produce. Oh, okay. The, yeah. And he's at a screening with, with Heather Paxson. Donahue and somebody just won't believe that Heather Donahue is actually alive. Yeah. Like he, he's with her. She's standing right next to him and they're talking to a guy and the guy is like, it's a shame about that girl. I mean, it's just so sad. And he's like, literally, she's right here. And they showed, I think they showed him her ID oh and he still wouldn't believe it. Well, I mean, that, it, that's yeah. how compelling it was. No, that was the thing. It's like IMD, I, they got IMDB to say presumed dead on on the different actors, on Josh Leonard and Heather Donahue's IMDB pages. Yeah. Like, I mean, that this was just, a, there was no rules, you know? They were able to manipulate all of these arenas that were supposed to just be fact and no one was really keeping track of it. It was just an early example of how the internet has no fact-checking system. Seriously. What did you think when you were watching it, even in 2019? I was talking a couple of days ago with Sean and Amanda about how 
this movie was like one of the last like you could still get lost in America movies. I know because just like <laughs> GPS becomes so much more widespread. And even though they probably like if if truly they were in some mystical vortex where their, you know, stuff was breaking and they were walking around in circles, even though they thought they had been walking west for hours. Like there was something about when they realize they've passed that log more than once and they start crying about like the fact that they're going in circles. That's almost more terrifying to me than there's a witch in this house. For sure. I mean, and I think that there's a whole generation that knows what it's like to get lost and there's a whole generation that doesn't. I've been lost in my car before, like long before we had smartphones and that really freaked me out. So I like felt for them. Like I remember that feeling. The the thing that like kind of stuck with me watching it was people were, they, they were so smart to every once in a while refer to the camera like why are you still filming Mm -hmm. or like there was just a a consciousness of explaining why that extra prop was there but not too heavy-handed just in a way that it made it feel really natural like yeah of course we need to acknowledge the camera and and that just they, they were really smart about making it realistic enough that I never was like oh yeah they're clearly doing this like for attention or this is clearly scripted it was it was like very much an experience through the camera in a way that feels really natural now that everyone kind of knows how to do that's such a great point because I noticed when I was looking I was watching it a little bit and I was watching the behind the blur which documentary after after I read your piece Heather especially acts exactly like the way people acted when camcorders were around. Like they felt the need to be like overly expository because it it wasn't like a common occurrence to be like having people take your picture or have or being on camera the way in which I think anytime anything interesting happens anywhere, people pull their phones out, even if it's just like, oh, I can't believe it. I built like a house of cards on this bar table and somebody takes a picture of it. But the way in which, like, if you had a camcorder there at that time period and you started filming your friends, even your friends would go into, like, TV host mode. Totally. They'd be like, oh, let me do a jig for the camera. Welcome to my living room. (laughs) Thanks for visiting, guys. Like, it was almost like you automatically thought you were on Cribs, even even though you just lived in a shitty apartment. You were like, this is where I sleep. Pretty cool. I like it. Don't really have a box spring, but that's okay. But yeah, the Heather stuff was always really incredible. I was wondering whether or not you had had much experience with or done much reading about some of the more like recent Blair Witchian phenomenons like Dear David, that Twitter thread that happened a couple years ago. I haven't. No, I don't know anything about that Twitter thread. I just know that they tried to do a reboot of the Blair Witch Project, which I think they called The Woods. Yeah, so that was actually pretty interesting. They, The guy, Adam Wingard, who did that movie The Guest with Dan Stevens a couple of years ago, and he's actually a really, really good horror filmmaker. I, I guess if you're saying that you're a coward, you probably aren't familiar with his work. But <laughs> No, not um, at all. <laughs> so that was like, they they were making this movie called The Woods, and it kept they kept being like, it's the woods of the woods. And then the last, like pretty much when the trailer came out, Everybody, had the, the you know, if you were following horror movies, you were like, oh, cool, Adam Wingard's doing like a haunted forest movie. And then it was like, this is a Blair Witch sequel. And it's basically Heather's brother goes looking for her. Right, and they use like drones and stuff, right? Yeah, and <laughs> but I will say that that movie is like, as somebody who who is like pretty into horror movies, there's a long sequence in that movie that is almost like unbearably scary. Really? For me, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's essentially like a like a a fifteen minute strobe light sequence. Oh, geez. 
Yeah, see, I'm freaking you out just telling you. Yeah, about it. I'm like I am. I'm getting like my skin is prickling. I, I don't like this. But yeah, I was just kind of curious about like you know the way in which like Slenderman and some of the creepy pastas have kind of um, they they are starting to be like intellectual property for TV shows and movies and stuff like that. It, it's it's interesting that this whole thing that Blair Witch kind of if they didn't invent, they at least uh, perfected has now since then kind of become a genre. No, definitely. And I was writing this as the Momo challenge became like this huge thing. And I was thinking like, oh, the Momo challenge, I mean, like, I think I tweeted this, Blair Witch walked so the Momo challenge could run. Yes. <laughs> you know, Can it's you like explain both- the Momo challenge for anybody who doesn't <laughs> sure. know what it is? Yes. It's like this Japanese artist, I think, like made this creepy mask. And then somehow this image became um, central to a weird viral hoax that said, if kids saw this image, they would like hurt themselves or it was just sort of like it was presented to parents on local news as a a viral challenge that was or like set up to hurt your child. And that was all just kind of based on a weird lore on the internet, a very like creepypasta um, origin story. I mean, I think Slenderman is scarier. <laughs> yeah, Slenderman like, is a, terrifying. A, a girl actually stabbed her friend because they. She said that Slenderman told her to. <laughs> yeah. So, do you feel like? I guess like this is a weird question, but like, would you say that because of the amount of time you've spent thinking and writing about the internet, you're a more cynical or like, are you less credulous about like phenomenons now? Like, are you? Does your brain always go to how is this a hoax? You know, it, it's to me, whether or not it's a hoax doesn't matter as much anymore. Like being like, oh, this isn't real. Stop tweeting about it. I'm more worried about like what happens after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like because there's always a twisted sort of tunnel on the internet where something that doesn't become real be, still becomes an inspiration for something terrible and fucked up. Yeah. And, you know, Slenderman is a great example of that. And now there's a movie about it, which is just like, how is this happening? I know. <laughs> I can't even tell, like, how they figure out, like, who owns the rights to those. I mean, I, Nick Antosca, who came on a few few episodes ago, he his show, Channel Zero, was essentially based on creepypastas. But, yeah, I mean, they are really chilling. I mean, Victor had that amazing story on The Ringer a couple of years back about the the part of Legend of Zelda that like is actually like super dark. Remember that? Yes. Oh my god, an amazing story. But yeah, yeah. such a great example how it something just kind of like grows its own legs and then crawls out of the screen and then influences our everyday life. I mean, you just described the beginning of The Ring, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, Alyssa, I have, that's another one I've seen. <laughs> you have seen that one, yeah. Yes. That, and that actually is like the sort of high-end version of what we're talking about, is like a kind of thing that gets passed around. That was the other thing that I thought was really cool about your story is when you mentioned the guy who was encouraging people, I believe it like, was it at the studio, like people who were making like five bucks an hour or whatever? He was like, you guys should like bootleg this movie. We want to get word of mouth out there. Totally. Yeah, yeah. He had been there. He had been working there and he was just like, yeah, share it with your friends. He wanted it to be like low level, not like industry execs to, for, for, so it could like trickle up and trickle down, which I thought was really smart. That's fascinating. Well, it's a great piece, Alyssa. Thank you so much for coming on The Watch. Thank you. So now I'm joined by Juliet Littman. Hi. Juliet is one of my best friends. One of my best friends at The Ringer. And in life. I was about to say, do you need to qualify it? No, not at it's all. It's very nice, Chris. You're one of my best friends, too. And uh, I take her very seriously. <laughs> so a couple of weeks ago, I don't even know how this got disseminated, but 
it, it got. I'll tell I, you how it, it got disseminated. Okay, so, but you basically like let it be known that if someone didn't watch Vanderpump Rules, you didn't take them seriously. I as didn't a respect them, is what I said. Do you think that there's a distinction between the two? I guess you could take somebody seriously and not respect them. Yeah, like I, I take like you could take someone's threats very seriously, but like not respect them. Oh, uh, I see. I'm like thinking of like Lindsey Graham right now. I take him seriously and I don't respect him. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, it's fine. We can get as political as you want. I don't care. Uh, and then so like I took that. I took that seriously. I said that on um, on Bachelor Party, the first episode of Colton season, and I think it offended our dear friend Mallory Rubin. So she then told many people that I said that. Oh, okay. Well, in any case, <laughs> I was on a flight back from New York, and I, you know, it's a great time to crush a bunch of episodes totally. of reality TV because you just it just it just Mindless. melts away the hours. And I started watching Vanderpump, which I think I had kind of like vaguely understood just from my proximity to you and my proximity to Jacoby over the years of what it was about and what the deal was. And I knew you guys could go to Sir. Yes. And you could like see them in the wild. Yes. But I don't think I understood really what the show is about. And I think what I really enjoy about it is kind of how boring it is. What would you say it's about? Um, I think it's people pretending to live their lives. Okay. Because that's what I really wanted to talk to you about sure. is like what degree of uh, what's the level of truth that's going on in this reality show? It's a question that lingers over all the great reality shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it does, really. Um I think when the show began, I think they they filmed season one in 2012 and it premiered in 2013. They have a production from, very famously, one of the most important events of the year and certainly in the Vanderpump Rules season is Pride here in L.A. Right. So it's set in West Hollywood. West Hollywood. It's huge. It's Lisa a huge Lisa Vanderpump is a huge, is a big ally of the LGBTQ community. Uh-huh. And they always have, and she has been for a long time. I would say nothing that Lisa does is really new. Like everything, she's embroiled in a huge, huge fiasco on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills right now. Is she? It's a crazy feud. There's lying. There's deceit. There's dogs. Is, Ken, just, is Ken involved? Ken is involved, Yes. It's just brewing. It's a whole long thing. Side note about that, Denise Richards on the season of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, she's incredible. Is she I love her. Is she like bringing the heat or is she just no, she's like of... super, she's like, she's like a normie compared to these other ladies. Really? It's so fascinating. Okay. Anyway, besides the point. So Lisa's always really been into pride and that really marks the Vanderpump season. So they, they are in production. They shoot from June through August, basically. Okay. And Pride is when? Late June. Oh, so Pride is like, it's like... It's, it's picture, the beginning of the season. It's opening day. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And Lisa Vanderpump is Bryce Harper. Yes. Striding into the into the stadium. Okay. So when the show started, it was based around Stassi and Sheena and Katie and Kristen, basically. Right. Just and the four of them. Really just the four of them. They all worked at Sir. And that was legit. Stassi was friends with Lisa's daughter. Sheena was involved... Sheena has just always been looking to be famous, but she first came to notoriety because the very first episode of Vanderpump Rules was an addendum to The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and it was when Brandy Glanville was on the show. Mm-hmm. Brandy was going through a public divorce because her husband, Eddie Cibrian, had left her for Leanne Rimes, who he's still with. But before that happened, he cheated on Brandy with Sheena, who worked at Lisa's restaurant. And so Lisa was kind of like caught in the middle of this because she was friends with Brandy from the show. But she's got Sheena at her restaurant. Yes, and she really treats her employees as like protégés. I do think Lisa really cares about the people who works at Sir. I don't know. Like maybe I'm just totally in the tank for Lisa Vanderpump, but like in general, I I believe a lot of her shtick. Yeah. Um, Well, it does also seem like on one hand, her job seems to be to walk into a restaurant, take a seat at a table, and then receive a group of like one person yeah, like after person like, who's like, "This is my problem with Billy, or this is my problem with Jax, or J- yes. D- you know James, or whatever." And so, the predominant storyline of this season thus far has been the opening of Tom Tom, which is her new. She has like her own restaurant row. It loops around 
Sir is on Robertson between like Santa Monica and Melrose. Mm-hmm. And then down the street is Pump. And then around the corner from that, like right next door is, on Santa Monica Boulevard is Tom Tom. She yes. also has a fourth restaurant, Villa Blanca in Beverly Hills, which I haven't been to. And that's like in downtown And Beverly that's Hills. the one that Kristen was like, I can see myself at some point getting back to Villa Blanca and drinking rosé yes. with Lisa. Tom and Ariana, Tom Sandoval and Ariana, began as bartenders together at Villa Blanca. Okay. So she has a whole, she's got her whole like ecosystem. If you had to guess, was Tom Tom opened? So Tom Tom is this bar that seems to be the like main like narrative fulcrum of this show yeah, now. of this season, yeah. And I bought a Tom Tom shirt. Right. Now, I haven't been to Tom Tom though. It's really hard to get in. They're fucking printing cash, and a lot of celebrities like to just like go for the thrill of it, like, just to be like seen there. Selena like to, Gomez went. Are you serious? I swear, uh, <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence famously was really into Vanderpump a long time ago. She's just really into reality TV, Jennifer Lawrence. But like a lot of celebrities have wanted to go to Tom Tom. It's okay. like a, it's like a full fledged thing. These people, to answer your question, they started out as just like randos trying to make it in LA, modeling, music, acting, but like sustaining themselves through waiting tables. And now they're legitimately really famous and they get make a lot of money. Tom Sandoval and Ariana just bought a house in Studio City for like $2 million. Right. I was going to ask deal. you about this. Like the the proximity seems to be a huge thing. And one of the things that grabbed my attention early on in my experience with Vanderpump was one of them saying like, I never go south of Wilshire. I never go west of La Cienega. And I never go east of La Brea, yeah. which is essentially like five blocks. And their northern boundary is sunset. I, yeah. I think. That's insane. Yeah. That's a really, really small. You might as well live in Orlando if you do that. And many of these people are from Florida. <laughs> yeah. Jax, the Toms, and I think Katie are all from Florida. So okay. you got there. You're not so wrong there. Um, it does really speak to like their worldview though. Like LA to them is something they probably saw on television and like they just like are living that life. And yeah. And I think if you move to California, you're presented with all these visuals that you have seen on TV for many, many years. And it's weird how accurate many of them are. But then then you peel back the layers and you live here for longer. You're like, oh, this is also a normal place where normal people live. They have chosen to be aspirational through and through and not make the transition to normie. I accept that I live in LA now. Right. And I think that I had like a hard time when I moved here. Where I was like, oh, this isn't a, as much like as like heat as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I don't. I said, it, or like it wasn't as neon and like. I guess it was less urban than I thought it was going to be, and at least where I was living. But they have such a specific area that I never ever willingly go to. Agreed. In West Hollywood, and uh, the fact that they spend like all of their waking hours, and one of the funniest things on this season, I'm trying to get like this show is intentionally and unintentionally funny, but one of the funniest things about this season is uh, Shayna, right? Sheena. Sheena has moved to Marina Del Rey. Yes. And they are all so fucking loath to visit her because it involves traffic. And it's a, such a relatable, like, funny thing that they keep going back to. And Kaya, I'm sorry, because I know, Kaya in this case, in, you're the Sheena, right? She lives in Redondo. <laughs> I never hear the end of it either. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that, that there's all this, like, very funny observational humor. And then you add it to the fact that, like, they are insisting that these people are still like barbacks and bartenders yeah. and waitresses and they're picking up shifts and trading shifts. And I'd really enjoy that because that's like not something that they make TV shows about anymore no. as like a situational comedy. Anymore. Right. And it, it is foundational to the show, basically. And so when the show, start, show started, they really did work there. Like I have been there several times. Like Sheena was my waitress. Did you say like, I Kate. love you on the show? Yeah. And was, was she like, like, oh, thanks? Or was she ago. just like a... Yeah, so when we were working in Grantland, it was like a long time ago. Yeah. And 
Katie was my waitress once and Tom is like made me a drink. Like, I, like but they don't. I, so I interviewed the co-EP, um, Jeremiah Smith, mm-hmm. for Bachelor Party, my reality TV slash Bachelor podcast. And he was like, yeah, they work there. And kind of, I can't remember if this was off the record or not. So I'm just going <laughs> to tell you what I've gleaned uh-huh. based on proximity to... Sources say. Go, sources say. Yeah. I think that they work there, they pick up shifts and, and are functional in Sir when they're filming the show. Okay. So when the show is in production... It's like a seasonal staff. It's like kind of like the lifeguards come back for the summer, you know? Yeah. And when it's March, they are doing, they are making appearances. They're going right. Opening, to bars. Doing they're, nightclub appearances yes. in Vegas and yes. wherever else. Yes. Right. DJing. Yeah. Yeah. And so they don't not, it's not fake when you see it on TV, but their lives have changed. But like, I think it took a long time for their lives to really change. Sure. Like, and then, because it's become something of a phenomenon now, right? Yeah, it's. I don't know what the ratings are, but it's like definitely a cultural phenomenon, and it, it's only grown. I mean, that's the crazy thing about this show is that I think it's gotten like similar to The Bachelor, has gotten way more popular in like the last three to four years. Mm-hmm. Though this is like season season seven or eight. Yeah, what's the legitimacy of like the romantic relationships on the show? Because um, there's some marriages. Yeah, so t- Katie and Tom have been together a really long time, and they're married currently on the show. They're like in the middle of a huge fight, and mm-hmm. he told her he doesn't like the sound of her voice, and she was rage texting him from a different cabin on the right, plane. Right, well, they flew to Mexico, yeah, Puerto and Tom Mayarda. got upgraded to first class, and she was basically like, can I have that seat? And he was just like... Also, he accepted. He could have stayed with her in like the main, in the economy cabin. Sure. As a married guy, like what would happen in your marriage if you if you took that seat? Well, my wife is really scared of flying, so if I somehow made her more uncomfortable on a plane, I would might as well jump out of the plane. See, I... I think Katie gets a really bad edit because, like, I just feel Tom is like being mean to her, but I just feel like Katie's like coming off as like this like belligerent drunk, which mm-hmm. maybe she is. But I think what Tom did is kind of fucked up. So yeah, I mean, I think that I think that it was just sort of like it was also I, I don't really understand because like I wouldn't also board the plane without my wife, right? So it'd be weird if like my wife like was like where did you, where did you go? Are you like on this plane? You're like, like oh, in first class. Yeah, I guess we don't really go to Puerto Vallarta with six of our. Of our also friends. smashed friends at, at eleven in the morning. No, you don't. Um, so Tom and Katie got married on the show. I think that's legit. They they were together. The season one, Schwartz was not really on the show because mm-hmm. he didn't work at the restaurant. So he's never has worked at Sir, as far as I know. Um, I think all the relationships are legit. Tom Sandoval and Ariana, super legit. Tom used to date Kristen, and it was a big drama when they broke up. Tom Sandoval, yeah, did. He cheat, okay. Tom Sandoval cheated on Kristen with Ariana, and then. Jackson Stassi work together. There's so much drama. Jackson Stassi work yes, together for several seasons. What's that relationship like now? Well, back then was it oh, like terrible. tempestuous? It Oof. was terrible, very tempestuous. In season one, he like crashed her birthday when they were on a break, and she had a new guy with him. And then Kristen and Jax hooked up and lied to Stassi about it. Does she know about it now? Yeah, it was part of season. Is this kind of why Kristen is is like so exiled? Because seems like of. she's on the outside. Kristen looking in. Kristen has a lot of has just had a lot of feuds. Kristen and James dated. James um, the DJ. <laughs> yes. And now she hates him. She did. They yeah. did? DJ James Kennedy. Yes. Yeah. I think all of the relationship stuff is very real. And he DJs at Ohm, which is like right by Hollywood our Highlands. office. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he does. I mean, DJ James Kennedy is all over the place. I think the fakest relationship is Raquel and James. Okay. And that's, I think she is as dumb as Lala says. Um, okay. One of my like really anti-PC crusades of 2019 is like making it okay to call people dumb. Okay, well, like, you can do that here if thanks. you want to. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Vanderpump is just, in, it's a, an intoxicating show because 
because their friendships are real, it's really easy to get sucked in because there is both the quality of like extreme mundanity where you're just like, you guys are just like friends who just do stuff together. Okay. Like I friend, it's like, it's so familiar, but at the same time, they are living these like sun drenched LA lives where they're actually famous. It's also a weird throwback. And I was, I was trying to think about this last night when I was like, I was watching one and I was like, oh, the reason why this is kind of refreshing is because most of their conversations now take place over text message between people. Yeah. Like you would never be like, I'm driving over to your house to have like an inane conversation about what I did yesterday. Right. I would just text you like, oh, guess what I did yesterday. Right. But in the show, because they obviously just need the footage, these people, and because they live two blocks from one another— they're just um, constantly going to each other's apartments and being like, I'm mad at Stasi," And you're just like, oh, like this is so much better TV than what life would be like if you were just seeing these totally. people's phones, basically. Also, Jax and Brittany live in the same building as Tom and Katie. So it's kind of like a ground zero. Right. So that people like just go over there to, to hang. Plus the four of them are often in the same place. And that is has been really good for the show that they right. live in the same building. And I think that's coincidental. I don't think that was like, I don't think that was because... It isn't like Bravo was like, can you yeah. guys all live in this one complex? It wasn't. Yeah. I, I'm, the Hills is coming back and I'm excited about the Hills because I heard it's the exact same production company that does Vanderpump. But they don't all live together. They all sound no, like... No, like, like Misha like, Barton is like just someone who needed a job. Okay. That's why she's on the show. Um, thanks for There's, being so supportive of my late adoption. No, of course. It's a great, it's a great show and like, I th- just think everyone should watch. Like Kaya, as a fan... Is there anything you you were like, I hope they talk about this? Um, I just think, I, and Julia, you mentioned this when you were having the conversation with the EP. It's like the restaurant ties them all together. So it's like the reason it remains so interesting is because it's like whenever they fight and stuff, you're not ever like, oh, why are they still friends? Yeah. Like, why right. don't they, they just like drop these people? It's yeah. like they all live and work in the same area. And so it makes sense why they keep like mending their relationship yeah. with each other. And and this is similar with The Bachelor too. Once you're in the show and like in the ecosystem, you make can make more money if you're if you remain friends with everyone. Yes. I think that's the subtext of why James is so upset that he gets cut out of a lot of stuff is because it hurts his like his income. Earnability, yeah. Yeah. I mean he also doesn't seem like he has a ton of other stuff going on no, socially obvi- outside of them. Obviously well not obviously, it seems like he has a significant substance abuse problem. Sure. He really should not drink. And Lisa's right. You can't reward yourself for not drinking with the beer. Right. That's not how it works, buddy. My last thing I was going to say, in the spirit of you being like, it's okay to call people dumb. (laughs) I do find it kind of fascinating that I don't necessarily find these people very intellectually stimulating, but they all have like a like superficial grasp of like the vocabulary of therapy. Yes. And like needing closure or needing to express themselves or needing people to hear them or see them or not being like erased and all this stuff that's like, I find it like fat, like the intensity with which like when they have confrontations, they'll be like, they're always arguing about like who gets to talk and who gets to be mad and who gets to be like heard. Right. It's like, I think that actually gives it like a jacked up feeling of intensity. And someone like Tom Sandoval, who I'm obsessed with, but never want to meet, just because it would, there's no way he could live up to the image he has in my mind. Is <laughs> it's like he's not Lin Manuel Miranda. <laughs> what are you talking about? In Washington Heights, um, Tom Sandoval is so invested in injustice and right and wrong and what's fair. He is. Yes, he's like he defends James. Oh, that's why he's into James. That's why he defends James so much, and I think it's really admirable. Right, and it's also very simplistic and like doesn't really account for the broader world all the time. But Tom is really. So earnest 
in so many ways. And it, it extends to like really believing in like right and wrong and like fairness. And I, I, got, I just think it's like sweet. <laughs> What's another show you're really excited about either on or coming up? I haven't watched it, but this Sunday we got a, a masterpiece theater heat rock coming through. It's called Mrs. Mrs. Wilson. Mm-hmm. It stars Ruth Wilson. Uh, oh. Previously of oh. The Affair. <laughs> okay. And Ian Glenn, previously of Game of Thrones, currently of Game of Thrones in Downton Abbey. Uh-huh. He's um, Jorah Mormont. Yeah. Also has Keely Hawes and Fiona Shaw. Oh, shit. And it's about a woman whose husband dies, and then she finds out he had a second family. And it's based on Ruth Wilson's family. What? The, the Mrs. Wilson is Ruth Wilson's grandmother. And Ruth Wilson was just like, yeah, did look, she like write it? No, I don't think so. But- I think she's like a producer on it. Anyway, I'm really excited. I actually, I saw the commercial for it. I just have my DVR. I still use my DVR. I don't know if I'm like old school. No. I still use my DVR and it was set to record anything with Masterpiece in the title. So like any anything on KCET on Sunday nights okay. basically gets recorded. And so I popped on something. I wasn't that into it, but I did see all the commercials beforehand and I saw the commercial for Mrs. Wilson. And, you got and I was like, yeah, I'm excited about this. It's a great time for TV. I mean, it's got, we've got... Mrs. Wilson. Yes. Uh, we've got Fosse Verdon. I'm so excited about that. Yes. I don't like to watch screeners that much, so I haven't watched it. This is going to be a great, like, for, for a very select group of people who find themselves in, in, interested in choreography and, you know, the last 40 years of, like, I don't know, like Neil Simon and sure. Broadway and stuff like that. They're going to really like this show. Also, I'm obsessed with the entire team behind Hamilton. So this is, that's the entire team behind this show. I know. So it's, it's exciting. All right. We'll have you back on and talk about Fosse Verdon in a couple weeks. Great. See you then. Bye. Watch Vanderpump until then. Yeah. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Stitcher Premium and their new podcast, Wolverine, The Lost Trail. You've probably heard about Marvel's hit scripted podcast, Wolverine, The Long Night. Gizmodo called it the X-Men crime drama podcast I never knew I wanted. Now Wolverine is back in a brand new season of the podcast, and you can hear it only on Stitcher Premium. This season's called Wolverine The Lost Trail, and it picks up with Logan in the Louisiana Bayou. Wolverine heads to New Orleans looking for redemption and his ex, only she's nowhere to be found. Dozens of humans and mutants have gone missing. It's up to Wolverine to find out what's going on with Weapon X in pursuit. Along the way, he'll find biker gangs, Gambit, and a refuge run by a powerful mutant. You can listen to Wolverine The Lost Trail now on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to wolverinepodcast.com and use the promo code WATCH. All right, now I'm joined by my good buddy, Allison Herman. What's up, Allison? It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. It's been a minute. Um, We have a couple of shows we wanted to talk about because Barry is back this week. It is. And what we do in the shadows was on, I think, last night, on Wednesday night. Yes. And um, so we're both very excited about that. And then we're going to do just like, we're just going to take a step back, clear out, and allow Allison to talk about this Jane the Virgin episode. Did it Much just come like on? Much like Gina Rodriguez on Jane the Virgin <laughs> last night, I'm going to deliver a seven-minute, one-take monologue. What, whatever we can do to, to get the word out. Okay, so let's talk about what we do in the shadows first. This is one of those shows, I think, that when you hear that they're making a TV show out of this movie or out of this previously used, you know, content, you're just kind of like, huh, okay, sounds good. Like, I thought the movie, What We Do in the Shadows, was absolutely hilarious and delightful and way funnier than it even had any business being. And I kind of feel this way, that way about the TV show, too. I mean, I, I don't know why it needed to happen, but it's actually pretty entertaining. 
Absolutely. It's not a show that really tries to make a case for itself. It just is what it is, which is funny. And it does basically exactly what it needs to to the premise and setup of the movie, which is essentially nothing except swapping out, you know, the highly in-demand director of Thor Ragnarok for uh, other collaborators. That's right. So for people who don't know, you want to tell them a little bit about the show and where where it comes from? Sure. So it's based on uh, the sort of mockumentary feature, which is kind of stretching it because the movie is literally like 89 minutes long. But the movie was made or was starring Taika Waititi, who the whole world now knows. Yes. And Jemaine Clement, half of Flight of the Concords. And they played, you know, vampires. But the whole joke was there are these supernatural, super-powered beings who were just subject to the crushing mundanity of everyday existence and living with roommates and having to negotiate with each other. And the show basically preserves everything about that. It's the same setup. Some of the same dynamics between the characters are the same. Some of the same visual devices are the same. Like, uh, part of the, the joke of the movie was that They fly and they turn into bats, but they're very obviously on wires and they don't make a huge amount of effort to make it look totally seamless. It's a little, you know, self-consciously janky. Yeah, it's like lo-fi in a cool way, yeah. Yeah, or it uses, you know, all these like 16th and 17th century illustrations of these really fearsome vampires and juxtaposes them with these kind of like sad goths. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Belayden in black silk. Yeah. Now they've brought it to FX. Uh, They've changed up the cast, obviously. And I think that there's just something where... You might think in the initially like, well, how many how many swings can they get at this ball? Because there would be like a limited amount of jokes, but they actually wind up finding like just a really nice rhythm to the whole show. It's a sitcom. That's what's kind of so nice about it is it's not trying to be a half-hour dramedy. The episodes are 21 to 24 minutes, and I believe Alan Seppenwell pointed out in his review, or maybe it was Matt Zollerside, sorry. So apologies to both of them. (laughs) But I read both the reviews, and at least one of them pointed out that if this fits into a pre-existing tradition in American TV, which is the mockumentary sitcom, it's basically like The Office plus Nosferatu jokes. Yeah. And there's something so pleasant about being like, this is not asking anything of me. Instead, it is giving me lots of amusement and entertainment. And also, Beanie Feldstein is in it. Yeah, and we yeah. love Beanie Feldstein. Yeah. So. yeah, I mean, it seems like there's just more and more of a demand for those shows ever since I think people have, especially since the boom of Friends and Office on Netflix, I think I feel like I hear more from people like, I just want this like, soothing medicinal show that's like really nice and doesn't demand knowing an entire known universe of mythology and connections between like time periods and texts and I'm obviously talking about Game of Thrones but yeah. (laughs) Well it's airing week to week but we got four episodes of screeners and you just run through them because they're 20 minutes there's not like huge stakes you're not totally tense about whether so and so is going to die because spoiler alert they're all already dead. Yes. But um, (laughs) you know I just ran through them and you can totally see that once the whole season is out and they put it on Hulu or just keep it on the FX yeah, app. Yeah. It's just going to be like such a nice, okay, we'll just like binge this over a couple nights and it'll be amusing and we don't really need to think about it a lot, but we got a lot out of it. So I haven't got, speaking of of sort of the kind of feeling you get from watching a show, Barry ended on a decidedly down note. And I think a lot of people were curious about it coming back. I haven't seen any of the second season, but a lot of people were curious about it coming back about how it was going to go forward from this moment where our protagonist essentially became as unlikable or, you know, as unidentifiable with as you can possibly be, became a murderer. Uh, What have you thought so far about the second season that you saw and what they're doing with that show? 
Yeah, I mean, I was also one of those people who was sort of like, it's good for series to be limited now. Barry had such a strong first season. It has seemingly answered the question that the whole show exists to ask, which is, has Barry's life as a hitman totally poisoned him or left him incapable of reincorporating into society? And the answer pretty conclusively is yes, or at the very least, like the actions he takes in order to incorporate without facing any real consequences like jail time totally put him beyond the pale. Sure. And James Ponowazek wrote a really great piece for the New York Times to that effect that that was then referenced in Bill Hader's New Yorker profile where he (laughs) and Alec Berg said— I believe the quote is tough shit about making a new season. Yeah. And I kind of understand when they say that because I watched the new season and I was so impressed without any spoilers or anything. Uh-huh. But basically what how they address that is they shift the question from is Barry redeemable or is Barry a good or a bad person? Which to, is sort of the question of 21st century television. Yeah, like exactly. every drama asks that. Exactly. Yeah. It switches to how long is it going to take until this guy can admit to himself that he's a bad person? Right. Which is really a great theme for this comedy that is a split between an organized crime drama and an acting class spoof because, mm-hmm. you know, actors are nothing if not totally oblivious and unself-aware. Self-deluded, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so it becomes this really valid question, not just for Barry, but also for his girlfriend, Sally, who's this working actress now, but, you know, in the season, she can't quite get the parts that she wants. Or, you know, uh, their acting teacher, Jean Cousineau, played by the wonderful Emmy-winning yeah. Henry Winkler. Um, and so it becomes, like, a really great way to tie the whole cast together and not feel like they're belaboring the show or, worse yet, like, regressing into, okay, like, we've established that Barry's bad, but, like, what if we backtrack on that and make him maybe good again. kind of yeah, good? Yeah, like it was all a dream or what? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was— I, I was curious because not only was Barry— it was pretty high concept in terms of its writing and in terms of like the scenario that it put forward. But it was relatively high concept in terms of its filmmaking for something that was just like a half hour thing where you're like, oh, I've seen this story before. But like, I think Hater and Hero Mirai really tried to like squeeze every drop of cinematic blood out of out of it. Do you feel like that continued as well? Like the sort of high level filmmaking? Totally. And Hero Mirai is he directs the premiere and, you know, there's still like the whole organized crime element. So you get these amazing showcases of Barry tries to do it or, you know, Barry does a hit or the Chechnyans try to do something. Mm -hmm. So you get that, that whole side of the show is still very much in place and you get the visual gags of there's one scene where uh, Sally is like Skyping a friend from home and you see from the point of view of the computer so you can see her and then Barry like runs across the living room with like a gun with a silencer (laughs) on it. So there are all these amazing cute visual jokes that are just so well done but it's also not like incredibly flashy. It doesn't call a ton of attention to itself because it's still set in the San Fernando Valley which is like the ugliest place in America. I know and it's also (laughs) like the most like dislocating and alienating place to be. I mean that's no accident that that's where Magnolia is set. It's just kind of like that's that's sort of like the the topography of loneliness, I think. Okay, so Barry we'll definitely be talking about in the weeks to come. Do you want to talk a little bit about Jane the Virgin? I would love to talk about Jane the Virgin. Okay, so set me up with, like, it's always interesting when you, like, get up and you open up, like, Vulture or something like that, and you get the feeling like you may have missed, like, some epical moment in TV. I think headline writers are especially astute about now being, like, the thing that happened last night that you'll never forget. And so, but that was kind of, like, breaking down Gina Rodriguez's amazing monologue on Jane the Virgin. So can you just set up what happened a little bit? Sure. So just to like fully backtrack back to the beginning, Jane the Virgin is a drama, hour-long dramedy on the CW that is adapted from a Venezuelan telenovela uh, of the same name. Mm-hmm. And 
It's basically like a deconstruction of slash defensive telenovelas that is also a telenovela, which sounds way more academic than it is. But basically, the show's signature move is that they incorporate all these tropes of soap opera storytelling. So, like, someone impregnates themselves with their ex-husband's sperm, or, like, they have an evil twin, or, in this case, Jane's husband, Michael, passed away a few seasons ago, and they've done a ton of incredible storytelling about, like, the long-term effects of grief. Mm -hmm. They've jumped ahead a few years. She's moved on in her life. They've been really smart and sober just about, like, not just the immediate, like, my life is destroyed process of grieving, but, like, how you go about rebuilding your life. And, of course, the cliffhanger of last season was that her dead husband just shows up again. Right. And we learned this season that he has amnesia because this drug lord who's kind of the big villain of of the show named Sin Rostro had promised her girlfriend that she wouldn't kill anyone anymore so she just faked his death and shipped him off to Montana and gave him electroshock induced amnesia. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Standard stuff. But in classic Jane the Virgin fashion this has an incredibly nuanced and realistic emotional impact where you watch this woman who would believe that she was a widow wrestle with both just, like, the practical impacts of, like, I was about to get engaged to my boyfriend. Am I still legally married? Or also, like, holy shit, my husband's back, but also I'm kind of losing him all over again because he doesn't have any memory of me or our life together. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a lot going on. So the way Jane the Virgin chose to address this was by having Gina Rodriguez, the lead actress, who's kind of in the process of this is the final season. show. So, you know, she was in Annihilation. She was mm-hmm. in that thriller, Miss Bala. She's, she's got like, this Netflix movie, Someone Great Coming. She's going to be Carmen Sandiego. Yeah. She's, like, putting her footholds out into the rest of the entertainment industry. But she gets, like, a seven-minute, one-take monologue where she just dumps all of her feelings on her mom and her grandma. And she also directed the episode. No shit. Yeah, so she had to, like, do a seven-minute take, run back to Video Village, get touch-ups. You mentioned Vulture. They did a really great article yeah, about Yeah, breakdown this. about it. Yeah, I saw yeah, that. It was cool. And, and and clearly, Jane the Virgin like knew that this was something people would be interested in because they had people like, yeah. on set while this was happening or like at the table reads and stuff. And it's just a really great example of what Jane the Virgin does best, which is both have like the fun and the frippery and the frilliness of just like totally over the top soap opera stuff. But you can also really invest in it because it's about people who seem and act like people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was actually, I mean, weirdly enough, that was the theme of my conversation with Juliet about Vanderpump Rules. <laughs> <laughs> Basically um, the same. That's cool. I didn't know that Gina Rodriguez directed that. It's just so neat when you have something coming out of an episode of television that you can go running to people and be like, did you see that last night? Because I think that because we do so much binging and streaming and people are watching tr- uh, previews or people are catching up with things way after the fact. Um, I mean, I think it's happened a couple of times for me with Saul. I'm trying to remember the last time I was like, oh my God, that's going to be an episode that people talk about for a while. For well, you, now, you- like, more and more, it's that thing where, like you mentioned, you're like, oh, I kind of fell off that show a season or two ago. Yeah. And, oh shit, now there's a Vulture headline that's like, this is the biggest episode of TV sure. to be. And so it was really cool that I actually got to, like, catch that in screeners and be like, oh, like, this is awesome. And there was, like, the Billions episode last year that was kind of, like, the heist from—not last year, from season two, I remember. that was like Yeah, the Ice Juice one. I remember being, like, a big, like, this is the best episode of Billions, and it's this crazy heist, and yeah. Heads up, uh, episode four of Billions of this season is going to be, I think, one of those. Yes. Okay, good. A little bit of a mic drop moment. Good, okay. Um, All right, is there anything else? I'm sure that we will be talking about uh, Fosse Vernon and Killing Eve um, in the weeks to come. Um, but anything else that you're particularly excited about that's on right now? Oh, my God. <laughs> before the before the Thrones onslaught begins and everything? I know. There's truly so much. Um, 
I will say I watched some of the final season of Veep, and I think that show has definitely like changed. But knowing that it's the last that you're going to get of this like iconic, literally record-breaking performance yeah. from Julia Louis-Dreyfus. It's just kind of like, you know, every fuck is a treasure. You exactly. Know? That's <laughs> how I felt about Broad City this year. Yeah, and that actually just wrapped up, which I shamefully am a few episodes behind on. But it's that same feeling of like, okay, this show might not be at its either creative peak or like zeitgeist season mm-hmm. peak, but it's still really fun to just watch like Hugh Laurie and Julia Louis-Dreyfus have yeah. sexual tension. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff coming out soon that is interesting. It's really, really curious to think about what's going to catch on. Like, I was thinking about this I with Fosse Vernon. I think the ringer is going to do its damnedest for Fosse Vernon. Well, I know, but it's like, a, I feel like we're going to be a very powerful few, but like, I don't know if that's going to really click. I hope it clicks with people. I think the people will want to check out Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams, and, you know, a lot of us have parents who will. But it, it's it's hard to make that, like, I, I it's, it's not... A star is born. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have like a shallows. Like, if you're into Sweet Charity's choreography, that's great. Well, I will personally say I am not someone who is into musical theater at all. It took me like a couple minutes to realize that when they name drop Steve, they're talking about Steven Sondheim. (laughs) I'm not like totally in touch with like how the choreography and cabaret. Can I tell you something? I'm kind of surprised to hear that. Really? Yeah, I thought you would be like kind of a theater kid. Oh my God, that's like the worst thing you've ever said to me. I don't mean that as like a diss. I just mean like it seems like you grew up like in like you, it seems like you would, you would be like, oh, I'm, you know, like Stephen Sondheim was on around my house. Not at all. Okay. I mean, it's funny. Like, I definitely grew up exposed to like other parts of like quote unquote high culture, but like we were like a jazz and classical household. We okay. were not an all that jazz household. <laughs> Although, <laughs> I did watch that for the first time recently, but point being like, I'm not necessarily the core demographic, sure. but it's almost like it's so specific that you just have to respect it. Yeah. And I totally found myself getting into its world, even though like I'm not you're not Possibly. getting, like, contact highs because Liza walked on screen or something no, like that. No, although I definitely did send you an all-cap slack that was, like, holy shit, Liza Minnelli. <laughs> yeah, as in this show. Yeah, she's not, like, a visual dead ringer, but she, like, opens her mouth and you're like, Liza. <laughs> yes, yeah. So. Um, okay, yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff coming out. Anything you wanted to shout out? Oh, my God. Well, I actually haven't seen this yet, but I feel like I personally forgot that Jordan Peele's revival of The Twilight Zone is happening on— I mean, I don't know how. It's been advertising with The Watch for the last three weeks. Yeah. I'm, you know, that 15-second button, I'm I'm fast on the trigger. But, you know, it's like this big cultural event that I have actually not seen yet, but I'm just very curious— whether a just from like a streaming wars perspective is this the thing that well, finally you and gets I people? as two good fight evangelists yes. and I feel like we're often greeted with I just don't know how I watch that and we don't have an answer other than get CBS all access I feel like maybe this is the thing where like they get the free trial and then I just kind of like whisper in their ear like while you're here do yeah. you want to check out this animated short about troll farms <laughs> like, which I also did, it, Michael Sheen on this season is so great yes I mean I think that there's I, I, th- I hope that if CBS all access gets a couple of shows like that it has a trickled out effect of like I'll also watch Good Fight or I will watch Good Fight and also watch Twilight Zone I imagine it would be Twilight Zone has like a sort of wider, I think, uh, net probably than Good Fight at this point. But. Yeah, or maybe it's kind of like the th- rule of threes where it's like some people are kind of interested in Good Fight, some people are kind of interested in Star Trek, but like 
with Twilight Zone, they have three kind of marquee headline events. And so I'm interested in it from that perspective. And of course, I'm also interested in it just from the sense of like, how are they going to revive this franchise? What mm-hmm. does this mean for Jordan Peele coming so soon after us? What do you do in, in the face of Black Mirror? It's kind of like got the digital era Twilight Zone thing kind of sewn up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. like are they going to go full tilt into like book face or whatever they call the social a social network in that show? Or are they just going to go straight into like, we're just going to keep it classic and not try to date it yeah, too right. much? And not make it too much phone phone terror. Yes, okay. exactly. All right, so. well, well, we'll definitely catch up on all those shows in a few weeks. Allison, thank you so much, as always, for coming on. Thank you for having me. 